So again, Romans chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of our Lord. Well, in this passage, Paul's going to defend some things that we think ought or certainly need not to be defended. He's going to defend the sovereignty of God, the trustworthiness of Scripture, the truthfulness of the events of the story of redemption, the very integrity of the gospel. Now, it should seem just a little bit strange to us that Paul is going to uh, defend uh, these Christian doctrines, these fundamental Christian doctrines, uh, here late in Romans in chapter 9. In many ways, this is all covered ground. But I want us to hear Paul doing this in response to actually a very practical challenge among the Christians in Rome. I've heard man call uh, Romans uh, Paul's systematic theology. I've heard others call it his magnum opus of Christian doctrine. But let's not forget that Romans is also just a letter to beloved Christians. Some he knows, some he doesn't. It's a letter to show his thanks to God for them. It's a letter to encourage them, to share with them, to help them. It's a letter. And in that letter, he expresses doctrine to be sure, but every Christian is a theologian. Their thinking and speaking should always be colored by the truths of doctrine. Paul, he's writing just a letter. And as he's writing this letter, directed by the Holy Spirit, he knows that there is a very practical challenge that is going on in this church in Rome. And it's been going on for the past decade, which is probably about how old the church at Rome is. And the challenge that the uh, believers in Rome are struggling with is this. Every Gentile in the church, every Gentile in the church knows more than a handful of Jews who refuse to accept the gospel. 
the worship of Jesus comes from the seedbed of Judaism. Uh, Jesus himself was a Jew. Every disciple was a Jew. The name Israel is God's own name for his people. As Paul says earlier in the chapter, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, etc. But in Rome, people who are part of the church realize that there is an alarming number of Jews who, while they have all of those privileges, they still don't believe in the gospel. Now imagine the conversations that would grow from this reality. A Christian Gentile meeting a Jew who doesn't believe in the gospel. And so this a Christian Gentile would proceed to evangelize their Jewish friend, uh, arguing for, strangely enough, uh, Judaism. Uh, how odd that would be. And this was certainly happening within the congregation. A Jewish member of the church might begin to reconsider the gospel they once believed. Perhaps they're harassed by Jews outside of the church. But uh, perhaps uh, as they learn more and more about the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, they begin to suspect that the gospel is actually too hard for them to believe. Or there are Jews who are coming to uh, the worship services in the church at Rome on the Lord's Day. And they're not members. They're brought there by friends. But they're, they're hoping to learn more about this Christianity because they are Jews, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. All of that privileged history, and yet they're still not believers. Well, and that confusion is in the church at Rome. And added to this in AD 49, about six years earlier than Paul's writing this letter, they open a letter six years earlier than that. Emperor Claudius had expelled uh, the Jews from Rome. There was some kind of disturbance, likely a disturbance related to those Jews who uh, refused to accept Jesus and those Jews uh, who did accept Jesus. And so just as this congregation is receiving this letter, expelled Jews are being allowed to return to Rome. And in the very church would be Gentiles who were not expelled. In the very church would be Jews who resisted expulsion because they claimed to be Christians rather than Jews and weren't expelled. In the very church, there would also be Jews who are members of the church, true followers of Jesus, who've just returned from enduring a five-year expulsion. What a mess. This poor church and, and Gentiles, all the while, they're, they're wondering how it is that a privileged people with a privileged name and a privileged history and a privileged family, how it is that those people could actually justify saying no to the gospel. And now the non-Jew is arguing for Judaism as the natural path towards the gospel. What a strange situation. But underlying a lot of the doctrine that we find in Romans is Gentile uh, uncertainty of the truthfulness of the gospel. If there are some even who have that privileged lineage of being an Israelite who don't believe in the gospel, how is it possible that, that, that me, complete outsider to Judaism could actually have life through the gospel. What this entire passage is saying to us is that because the gospel promises, uh, uh, the gospel promises belong to anyone who rests in Christ, the story of redemption, it actually has the power to not just astound, but to actually offend. Because gospel promises belong to anyone who simply rests in Christ. What that means is that the story of redemption, it has the power not only to astound, but also to offend. 
Now, in the sermon, I just have uh, two points. I'm dividing the passage in two parts. Verses uh, 6 through 8 are telling us that there are some who can be very close to the gospel and still miss out. Verses 6 through 8. And then verses 9 through 18, uh, those who uh, are in the gospel uh, will never be left out. So there's some who can be close to the gospel and still miss out. Verses 6 through 8. And then beginning at verse 9, those who are in the gospel, a part of the gospel, well, they'll they'll never miss out. Paul begins by saying it's not as though the word of God has failed. And this is a very strange thing to assert. Uh, Literally saying that the gospel hasn't fallen apart. The gospel hasn't become uh, broken. Uh, This is where I'm thinking of of a tired old structure that is beginning to sway or uh, a corner of it has already begun to collapse. Paul has just said that there are many privileges for those who are connected to the Israelite family. To To them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants and the giving of the law. The worship and the promises, he said in Romans chapter 3, that to them has been entrusted the oracles of God. He says to them belong the patriarchs, and not only this, Jesus himself comes from this line as the preeminent Israelite. And yet Paul is asking this question, uh, it is not as though the word of God has failed, is it? What's the problem? It's that problem that every person in the Roman congregation, they know an Israelite that doesn't believe the gospel. A Jewish neighbor, a Jewish person in the congregation that has, for whatever reason, and it seems like there'd be numerous reasons, has resisted believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ who is God over all. In fact, many in the congregation would have argued with the Jews saying that, it, that you've been entrusted with the scriptures, you belong to the adoption, you have all of these privileges, and yet you still don't believe in Jesus. But there's always that nagging thought in the back of a Gentile's mind that, well, if they don't believe in the gospel, maybe there's some weakness about the gospel that I ought to begin to doubt. You see, Paul knows that some Gentiles, probably without meaning, they think that the story of redemption is somehow defective. That the story of redemption that is centered upon the Israelite people, uh, the name given by God himself, is a story that's somehow weak because it's ineffective for some. And in fact, it's ineffective seemingly for those closest to the gospel realities. And so if Christianity is real, if the gospel is true, why doesn't it make more sense to those Jews? If the gospel is real, uh, why were the Jews not explicitly taught this by their parents or by their rabbi as a child? This word of the gospel, it seems as though it's failed the Israelite people. And perhaps this word of the gospel will one day fail me. You know, Paul, he actually... He states what they're, what they're thinking, uh, even though they'd never, they'd never quite put it so boldly. Uh, he says uh, that the presence of Israelites who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ who is God over all, he says it's not a failure of the gospel. I mean, it's a hard thing to be sure. But he says that uh, God's word isn't imperfect or ineffective or dishonest. 
This is the central doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. That's what Paul is asserting. This is why we protect the doctrine of infallibility of Scripture. It cannot be broken. And the inerrancy of Scripture, it's without error. Paul says, the Word of God, it hasn't failed. But that still doesn't fix the problem. Paul has just stated that what Isaiah had said 800 years earlier, that God's word will accomplish what God desires, that God's word will achieve the purpose for which he sent it. But everyone in the Roman church knows there are Israelites who don't follow Jesus. And so to hold up the integrity of the story of redemption while also acknowledging that there are Jews who do not believe in the gospel, Paul is going to make his point by stating the same thing in three different ways. And we see the first in verse 6. He says that there are some who have descended from Israel but actually don't belong to Israel. And that word descended, it's not there in the Greek, it's just a preposition, just from And he's saying that there are some who are genetically and ethnically from Israel, but they're not Israel. And he says in verse 7 a second time that there are some who are the offspring of Abraham. They're from the seed of Abraham, but they're still not the children of Abraham. And then he says it a third time in verse 8. He states emphatically that there are some people who are children of the flesh, naturally descending from the seed of Abraham. He uses that phrase positively. And yet they still are not children of God, the offspring of God himself. And so for some, just as just for Paul to say this confirms what they've been noticing as a church, just to hear Paul say that three times, in many ways, it's music to a person's ear. They have a, uh, an example of a person like this in mind. Now, surely, nobody in the congregation would want to put it exactly this way. The Holy Spirit had to through Paul. So paradoxical it is. However, it certainly matches personal experience. It actually matches personal experience in the life of the church. Not all Jews, those genetically connected to Abraham, those experientially a part of the story of redemption, those who you would think belong to Israel, not all Jews are truly the seed of Abraham. Not all Jews are truly the children of God. Now, there's two things that we need to make of this before we move on to Paul's uh, next section, beginning at verse 9. And the two things are this. First, there's some good news about the good news. There's some good news about the good news. In order to belong to Israel, in order to be part of the seed of Abraham, in order to be a child of God, in order to have all of those things, you actually don't have to have a certain ethnicity. You don't have to belong to a certain family. You don't have to be close to the events of the story of redemption. That's, that's really good news for the good news because that captures the majority of us here. You don't need to be uh, close to the gospel in that way in order to be saved by the gospel. Paul's already said something like this back in Romans 2 when he says that a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. Inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. And so this is good news, isn't it? That you don't have to have those privileges at the beginning of chapter 9. And you can still have all of the benefits of being a child of God. That's the good news about the good news. But there's also some bad news about the good news. 
Paul says that you cannot belong to Israel, be an offspring of Abraham. You cannot be a child of God based simply on your closeness to the gospel. What he's saying is he's actually making a challenge to us to apply this truth today. That just because a person has a a genetic connection with uh, Judaism, just because a person has a closeness to the events of the story of redemption, it doesn't guarantee their salvation. Of course, for those who would trust their ethnic similarity to Jesus for eternal life, that actually is against the Bible. He's a Jew, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm saved. How might we apply that today? Well, those who might trust merely their human similarity to Jesus for eternal life, to trust that he died for all humanity and I am a human being, that too would actually be against the Bible. The Bible doesn't treat that you, your salvation is secure merely because you're a human like Jesus is a human. And we might also add that uh, there are a number of things that we, we might riskily trust for salvation that the Bible says are no guarantees for salvation at all. We might talk about uh, our own family heritage having been connected to the visible church for generation after generation. Well, that's not a foundation for salvation. We might uh, trust our own connection to a church, our our membership, a, a stamped seal of membership in the visible church. But that's no ground for salvation either. We might trust our American citizenship for eternal life. I come from a land marked by Christianity. That, too, is against the Bible. And so the bad news about the good news is that you cannot belong to Israel or be a child of God through any earthly connection that you might claim. It only comes through faith in Jesus by grace. And this is what I mean when I say that because the gospel promises belong to anyone who simply rests in Christ, the story of redemption, it it has this power to not only astound by by the graciousness of God and the way in which salvation is received, but it can also offend by the jealousy of God by which he rejects your own personal grounds for salvation. Now, Paul has said in verses 6 and 8, that there are some who can be very uh, close to the gospel, as it, were, as it were, but still miss out. But we need proof of this. And uh, so Paul is going to pick up where he began in verse 6 by carrying forward verses uh, 9 through 18. He's going to say that it is not as though the word of God has failed by actually giving examples from Scripture of the word of God not failing. Do you see that? In verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then in verses 9 through 18, Paul is going to tell us how it is that the word of God hasn't failed. And so whereas before uh, he said that there are some who can be very close to the gospel but miss out, now he is going to say that those who don't miss out of the gospel really don't miss out. Their salvation is assured. See, Paul has a burden to show that this challenge of people in the church who have all the privilege of be, of privileges of being an Israelite and who are yet not true believers, well, that's not a new phenomenon in the history of Israel. Paul is going to go all the way back to Abraham and then his son Isaac, and then he's going to leap forward to Moses. But the truth of the matter is that in the history of Judaism, there have, has always been evangelism to Jews. What are the prophets doing? 
if they're not calling on people to return to God through belief in the gospel. Evangelism is shot through in Judaism all over the place. But Paul's going to actually draw out three examples. Now remember, in the first half, in verses 6 through 9, he gave us three examples from Scripture to show that not all who belong to Israel are truly uh, belong do truly belong to Israel. Three examples. He's going to give us three more examples here. He's going to reference some of the he- heroes of Israelite history. And he wants to show that being a child of God is not based on ethnicity. It's not even technically based on belief in the gospel, though that's a necessary component. And he's going to have to explain that. He says that being a child of God is based on something else, something that we might call belief and experience as belief. But Paul says at its root, it's based on election. God seizing hold of his children and not letting them go. And so the first thing Paul does is he quotes uh, God's words to Abraham. God said to Abraham in Genesis 21, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Paul uh, quotes this in verse 9. And then Abraham, if you'll recall that story from Genesis 21, uh, Abraham, he had become uh, uh, torn because there was a conflict in his house. His wife was arguing with his female servant, an Egyptian woman by the name of Hagar. And both of these women, they they carried a child of Abraham. Hagar had Ishmael as a result of Abraham failing to trust God's word. And then years later, Sarah has Isaac. And God's promise was that Abraham's line would continue not through Hagar, but through Sarah. The difficulty is this. Abraham's plan was that God's promise could be kept through an Egyptian woman, Hagar. But God's plan was for the old woman, Sarah, to have a baby. And God makes this happen. He's the only one sovereignly in control. And by his will, he makes Isaac the child of promise such that only by trusting in God's plan, Abraham and Sarah, they realize God's promises. Now, some might hear the story of Abraham, particularly Jews, and they, may, they might argue that, yes, God did that, but God was motivated to satisf- satisfy his promises in Isaac and not Ishmael because, after all, Ishmael was a tribe from an Egyptian mother. Ishmael had some genetic differences, and because of those genetic differences, God was motivated to prefer Isaac over Ishmael. It's the ethnicity that matters, many Jews, even in the church at Rome, would argue for. And of course, uh, God, they would say, is motivated to keep the ethnic purity of Abraham through a woman of family relation. But Paul wants the Romans to see that God is not motivated by cultural purity, and so he gives another example beginning in verse 10. The first has to do with uh, Sarah. The second has to do with Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah are both Hebrews, both of the same family. But even still, Paul quotes the Bible twice to present a challenge. And he goes to, uh, he goes to Genesis. And he says in verse 12 uh, that the older will serve the younger. God said that. The older will serve the younger. And this is a great reversal. God's not motivated here by any cultural or legal preference for birth order. And he's certainly not motivated by ethnicity because both of these lads are actually connected genetically to Hebrew parents. 
God's not motivated by ethnicity, and he's not motivated by any cultural preference that would favor the firstborn over the second. Jacob would be the one to hear the promise of God in in 28 of Genesis. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Jacob heard that, not his brother Esau. It's not cultural identity that motivates God. Uh, It's it's not uh, ethnicity that motivates God. And then finally, Paul is going to turn to another example. And this is an example in Egypt. Beginning in verse 14, Paul focuses on God's sovereignty again. And he looks at Exodus chapter 9 and Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh over and over and over again. Do you know what we're told in Exodus 9? We're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses and against God. But what Paul does is Paul cites where God tells Moses that he is the one who has hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, this is mysterious to be sure, but this is uh, Paul's way of assuring us of a reality in Scripture that we would skip over in Exodus 9, uh, that this is God's way of making sure that Moses knows that he is in sovereign control over the outcome. God says to Moses, a man who is terrified of the Pharaoh, God says to Moses, my plan is at work. Even with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, my plan is in charge. God's plan is at work even when in Moses' eyes, God's plan looks weakest. When Pharaoh is resolutely opposed to God's will. A small, unorganized body of people should not be able to call shots before the established power of the entire world. And Moses is terrified. And God says, I am in control. Now, God's not motivated by Moses. There's nothing that Moses does that motivates God to bring about a sovereign will. So what's Paul doing here? Remember, because the gospel promises belong to anyone who simply rests in Christ, the story of redemption has the power to not only astound but to offend. There is much to offend us in these three biblical illustrations. And I want to just close out this sermon by just challenging us to look at these three illustrations from the Bible that Paul presents and look at five things that are similar in each of these illustrations from the story of redemption. And the first is this, that in every case in these stories, human failure is all but expected. In every case, human failure is expected. Sarah, she's far too old for childbirth. And when she gives birth, how will she care for a child in her uh, old age? Jacob, he is powerless legally as a second-born. He doesn't have uh, any of the powers that his older brother would have. And Moses is an absolute nobody standing before the biggest somebody in the world. In every case, human failure is just, it's just imminent. A second is this, in every case, God shows his sovereignty. He's the one who gave Sarah a child in her old age. He is the one who gave Isaac and Rebekah a younger child who'd, who would receive the very inheritance of the older And he was the one who gave Pharaoh an opportunity to preserve his entire nation through the protection of a small man, Moses. 
God's sovereignty and control is everywhere in these three stories, and Paul connects them that way. Human failure is expected. God's sovereignty is everywhere. And the third is this. In every case, trust is paramount. Faith is paramount. Abraham and Sarah were called to trust that Isaac, the one born so late, would be the one whom God intended to carry forward the story of redemption. Isaac and Rebekah, against all human expectation, were called to trust that Jacob the younger would be the one to actually carry forward God's promises. And finally, Moses. Moses has to stand before Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh would leave belief in idols and believe in the one true God who can really do what he says. And in order to make that message clear, Moses had to trust that God would protect him. The fourth is this. In every case, Paul speaks about God's sovereignty in a way that extends beyond time. God's not just sovereign over the events that present a person an opportunity to believe or disbelieve the gospel. God's sovereignty, according to Paul, extends even behind the event of hearing the gospel and believing in the gospel. If a person becomes a believer, it's because God had a hand in it from before all time. The Bible tells us that clearly. This is the foundation of the doctrine of election, which we'll talk more about next week. But a Christian is a a Christian because they believe in the promises of God, to be sure. But whether they have a close connection to the gospel or not, belief in the promises of God, wow, that belief he has a hand in. This belief in God, it's not the beginning of the story according to God's word. Somehow, God's electing power is the true beginning that happens before the belief in the gospel, even though belief in the gospel is necessary. Now, Paul never says that the power of election means that we do not have to believe the gospel. Election isn't an excuse No man or woman has an excuse. Paul's been very clear about that in Romans 1 and 2. Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh, if they don't believe in the gospel, they will stand on their own two feet before God and make an account for what they think about Jesus. But in every case, Paul speaks about God's sovereignty in a way that actually extends beyond time and beyond my belief. And then the fifth way is this. In every case... Those who trust in Jesus trust not in a weak structure of the gospel, a flimsy building that that blows in the wind. We blow in the wind. We struggle with the circumstances of life. But because the gospel has the electing power of God at work, the gospel is secure. Those who are believers, they cannot expect to have their status as a child of God toppled over by great winds it might feel that way but a christian is told to understand their belief not in merely human terms but in cosmic terms now the the non-believer has no right to trust in election but the christian the one who hears and believes in the gospel is called specifically to trust more in election than in their feeble faith because when the wind blows It's their feeble faith that shimmers, but it is the gospel that remains resolute. He is sovereign over conversion, 
and the belief that we have in him is not a stagging barn, but it is the firm structure of a God who elects us from all eternity for all eternity. So here are the five similarities of these three stories. Paul is next week going to uh, spend more time on election. But in every case, human failure is expected. God is sovereign. Trust is paramount. And Paul speaks about God's sovereignty uh, that goes beyond time. And the trust that we have in Jesus is a trust in a very strong structure. This story of redemption, it has power. And as the Roman Christians are looking out at the church, they, they know that power experientially as they believe. But the, but the story of redemption, it has power not, not merely to astound, but also to offend them. Every Christian in the church at Rome is told that their salvation depends on nothing but the election of God. It's God's will that they would be Christians. Now, all Paul needed to say is that my ethnicity doesn't guarantee salvation, but Paul goes way beyond that. He says, your salvation depends upon nothing less than the very will of God. That can be offensive, but it ought to astound us. Are you here this morning in your week? You should be especially astounded. Your salvation rests with the very will of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Paul would see practical needs in the church at Rome, a doubting of faith, because the people who should be believers aren't believers. We praise you for Paul pastorally shepherding this congregation. And we praise you that by the Spirit he holds back no punch. The security that we have in faith in Jesus Christ is a security that you hold up, that you strengthen, and that you cause to last forever and ever. We thank you in the power of the gospel. Amen.